0: Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're in a series studying the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to invite you to grab the Bible, turn to the Old Testament, and lean in as we discover what God's Word says about godly living in 2024. I have this little switch. Okay, it's on. <laughs> and I always forget which way it goes. So, sometimes it doesn't work. It's nice to see you. How are you? You good? Good. Listen, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Um, we're going to look at verses 10 to 20 today. If you're new here, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors and uh, I get the privilege of teaching uh, the Bible here at Harvest. And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this. We're in the middle of a series on Ecclesiastes, which is a book that a lot of folks don't uh, have a lot of interaction with. And so. Um, Some of what it has to say is pretty uh, jarring, especially as it pertains to the stuff that um, we deal with in our everyday lives. Today, the passage actually is really focused in around around money. Now, I'm going to date myself here in the next minute, Uh, but when I was a kid, there was like appointment television. You don't do that now. Um, I, don't, I don't know if anybody sits down at like eight o'clock to watch this particular show because you record all this stuff, you just do it on your own time. Um, but back in the day, you did, of course, have to sit down and you had to watch the shows at the times that they told you that they were gonna be on. And there were certain shows that you just had to see. So for me, when I was a kid, the A-team was one of those, one of those. So yeah, it was like five of us in the room were like, yeah, we're old we know that. Uh, and then... <clears throat> My sisters used to like Fantasy Island. I don't know why. That was weird. It was a weird show. And then um, there was one show that that I always watched, though, and I made time to figure out exactly when it was coming on, and it was called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Um, There was a guy named Robin Leach. Robin Leach! And he is a British guy who would go and interview all of these very, very wealthy people. To be honest with you, it was probably the first... Reality television show I'd ever seen, and might have been the first one kind of ever where they they went behind the scenes and they showed you how it is that other people lived, and the other people that they chose were always like the wealthiest people in the world or some pro athlete or some uh, some performer or something like that, and um, and it was really put on. I I, I actually watched an episode this this uh, week just in preparation for it. This is what I do when I prep for my sermons. I watch shows like that, and it's really cheesy. it really is, but it's interesting at the end of the show, and I remember this at the end of the show, they always had uh, one of the character or whoever it was that they were interviewing. they would be on like their their pool deck in Malibu, and they 'd be waving like this with their friends as the as the the helicopter kind of pulled away and you saw this massive mansion and the ocean just beyond it and stuff like that. I remember uh, the one I watched this week, they had the end of it. It was about the richest man in the world at the time. And he had this like luxury yacht. And at the end, they took off on the helicopter off the luxury yacht. And he and his family were at the at back doing, you know, the fake way <laughs> like this and they pull away and then they cut out and Robin Leach says champagne wishes and caviar dreams to all of you and of course the message that they're giving is that this is the good life this is you now this is a happy ever after moment okay we're going to fade out and these people in our heads are going to go back to living this perfect life where they just sit on the boat all day and never get bored and everything's amazing and their relationships are just awesome all all the time uh, they have more recent versions of this kind of show. I don't know if you, some of you might have watched MTV Cribs. Uh, Cribs was a show where you'd, you know, they'd they usually go into a rapper's house and show you how many shoes he had bought in the last couple of years and like in a wing of his house was an entire, this is my Jordan wing and they just shoes, shoes everywhere. Um, there's one now actually that's called HGTV, it's called Extreme Homes and it's about like how it is that you can build a house in a submarine or a stuff like that, and they take you all around. But it's the same idea that, guys, don't you realize that this is the good life? This is the accumulation of wealth to the point where you actually can buy all of this stuff. This is actually what we should be aiming for. We're told it over and over again in our culture, and yet we know stories about people who have not, uh, you know, they've gotten a lot of wealth, and then it doesn't really turn out well for them. Um, I was actually also looking this week at some of the stories I've heard in the past regarding um, lottery winners and how that doesn't always turn out really great. Business Insider um, did, a, did an article on it just a few years ago, and they, they like accumulated all of these stories together, and so I spent time reading them. And here are three of the ones that I just found kind of shocking. Um, before they won $2.76 million uh, lottery jackpot in 2005, Laura and Roger Griffiths of England reportedly never argued... And then they won and bought a million-dollar barn, converted house, and a Porsche, not to mention luxurious trips to Dubai, Monaco, and New York City. Uh, media stories say their fortune ended in 2010 when a freak fire gutted their house, which was underinsured, forcing them to shell out for repairs and seven months of temporary accommodation. Shortly after... There were claims that Roger drove away one day in the Porsche after Laura confronted him over email suggesting he was interested in another woman. All of that ended their 14-year marriage. William Bud Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery in 1988, but he was a million dollars in debt within a year. So good for him. That's pretty impressive. "I wish it never happened," Post said. "It was totally a nightmare. A former girlfriend successfully sued him for a third of his winnings, and his brother was arrested for allegedly hiring a sorry, allegedly hiring a hitman to kill him in the hopes that he'd inherit a share of the winnings." After sinking money into family businesses, Post sank into debt and spent time in jail for firing a gun over the head of a bill collector. I was much happier when I was a broke, he said, according to the Washington Post. Bud lived quietly on $450 a month and food stamps until his death in 2006. In 1998, Gerald Muswagon won the $10 million Super 7 jackpot in Canada. But he couldn't handle the instant fame that came with winning the grand prize. Canada's Globe and Mail reported, quote, he he bought several new vehicles for himself And friends purchased a house that turned into a nightly party pad and often celebrated his new lifestyle with copious amounts of drugs and alcohol. In a single day, he bought eight big screen televisions for friends. Muswagon also poured money into a logging business that failed because of low sales. He was eventually forced forced to take a job doing heavy lifting on a friend's farm just to make ends meet. The worst part, Muswagon hanged himself in his parents' garage in 2005. I mean, look, there, there are tons of these kinds of stories. I don't know if you know about professional football players or whatever that signed their, their contracts and then everybody showed up and then they, they're, they're out of money for the next, in the next few years, in fact. People that you'd never, ever expect. You think, no, these people are living the good life isn't that the way it works, right? You pan out and you never see the, the, the next part. But the next part is not quite what we expect it to be. Which raises the question. <laughs> if we're chasing money all the time, which is what we're told to do in our society because the money will provide us with a better life. If we're chasing all, money all the time and it's gonna provide us for this better life, well, like is that true? And if we find, in fact, it's not true, or it's fleeting, or doesn't happen anywhere near as frequently as, as we think, how should we view money then? Is, it, it, is the way that a Christian should view money is basically saying, you know, we don't need any of it, I'm just going to give it all away, and I'm just going to live, you know, loving the Lord, maybe in a cave somewhere, divest ourselves of all the things that, that money can buy. There are, there are Christians, without a doubt, who make that argument. They write, they write books about it that make you feel very guilty for owning a bike. Certainly for owning the car that you have. Is that the way that we should go about it? How should Christians think about money this side of heaven? How should we live with it? I don't know if you've ever noticed this. The Christians, whenever we buy anything, we're always, Christians are great. I bought it, and, but I got a deal, right? It's always, because we, want, we feel awkward about it. We're not even sure what to do with it. So how should we live with it? Well, Kohelet, um, the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, the preacher, he actually it spends a lot of time on money. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about money and possessions and, and, and uh and pleasure in general, but we're going to take a bit of a deep dive, though, in his take on, on money itself. And you might say, why, why would you do that after just talking about it two weeks ago? Well, you'd be shocked at how much Jesus talks about money. <laughs> like if you w- read through the New Testament, man, he is just, it's like every example he gives is about a rich guy or a poor guy and uh, uh, always confronting money. It's almost like it's an idol of ours or something, which of course it is. So look, let's have a look at what this guy has to say, uh, Kohelet. Uh, he, he kind of does this in two parts. There's two big things he's going to say. Number one, money can be dangerous. And, and second, money can be delightful. It can be dangerous and it can be delightful. Let's, let, let's look at the first of those, okay? Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse 10. <clears throat> he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves it. And he who loves wealth will not be satisfied with his income. Uh, I'm, I'm squaring off the word loves because it's an interesting word in the original language, which was Hebrew. Um, it's interesting because it's the same word that's used for like uh, love of a spouse or love of a child. So Abram takes his son Isaac up on the mountaintop. It's the son, God says, I want you to take your son whom you love. Same word up there and I want you to sacrifice him. Um, Jacob loved Rachel, married couple. He, he, he was devoted to her. That's the idea. He was fully devoted to her. He saw in her hope and joy and meaning and value, right? <clears throat> so we're not talking about somebody who's just like, yeah, money's great. I mean, if I have some, great, if I don't, fine. And I, I like, I mean, if, and somebody who would be like, well, here's some more money for the job you currently do and is like, yeah, that's good. We're not talking about somebody like that. We're talking about somebody who thinks that money is going to answer all the questions. It's gonna provide for them the happy ever after. And Kohelet starts right off saying, look, he who who loves it won't won't be satisfied with money. The guy on the end of the boat, it looks like he's satisfied with it. The problem is he's not because... (laughs) The moment you grab the money, you want a little bit more of it. Because it does provide this fleeting joy, right? You can go to Abercrombie and Fitch or your favorite store and just be like, I'm buying everything. Then of course, two days later, the stuff in your closet looks old again. You thought it was gonna look great on you, and it doesn't. And you're like, it's always the clothes, it's not me. It's the clothes that don't look good. So you get on the hamster wheel and you keep running and you keep running and you keep running and you keep running. Our society, let's, let, I mean, let's be honest, especially in the West, in the United States in particular, is really, really driven by this kind of consumer hamster wheel, right? <clears throat> when I lived in uh, New Zealand, uh, there were four, that I recall, there were four cereals that you could buy. Uh, New Zealand is a great place, but the choices are not always uh, amazing! There were four channels on TV as well back in that day. Like public TV, there were four. Do you want to know what the names of them were? One, two, three, and four. That's, that was the channel. So if you talk to somebody the next day, did you see one yesterday? Did you see two? Anyway, but the grocery store like that. You go in and there's not an enormous amount of choices. Grocery stores in the States are so huge, but there they weren't as big. And so the choices were this thing called muesli, which is like a really, really bad granola. And then there was muesli that was supposed to be less bad, more like granola, but it was still bad. And then you had, <clears throat> then you had wheatabix. Weetabix, Weet-a-bix uh, sounds about as bad as it tastes. And then there was one with sugar in it, which is the one I always chose. But there were about four of them when I was there. When we would come back to the United States and I'd stand in the grocery aisle of a, of a, a grocery store and I, I, I would go almost every time I went to a grocery store, I would go there because I would almost be paralyzed by the choice. The next time you go to a grocery store, just stand in the, grocery, in the cereal aisle and look down and look down. And you, in your mind, you'd be thinking, how is it that we have this many cereals? You guys don't know how many Cheerios there are in the world these days. I, like, they, they have taken Cheerios and turned them into every conceivable thing. Oat crunch, cinnamon, oat crunch, oat honey crunch, you know? Honey nut, nut honey, nut crunch, honey nut cereal. And the, the reason they do this, right, and you know this, the reason they do this is because they're going to provide you a, a product, but in order to get you to buy more, they have to provide a new and improved product. And then, because who wants the old and useless product that you used to love and still kind of do? Ooh, new and improved. And then there's the new and improved one. Ah, that old one stinks. You see the wheel? And the crazy thing about it is that you and I, because we live where we do, we're like, I'm supporting the economy, (laughs) right? That's the game. That's the game. You will never, ever be satisfied with it. It's by design. You'll never be satisfied with it. But we keep chasing, and most of us are on the wheel, I'm going to work harder and get more money so I can buy more new, improved cereal. Then I'll be happy. But you won't. You won't. That's why he says it's it's Hevel. You you think it should work this way, but it doesn't. It doesn't work this way. Specifically, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. This is a very clunky way that the English Standard Version is is saying... um, when you have lots of stuff, all the people come over for your stuff. Uh, there was a park on a place called English Bay, just outside of Vancouver, where I've never seen so many seagulls in my life. Right, and you could buy French fries there, and at the at the park, and you. Guys would always come out, they'd get their French fries, and they had these massive big logs that you could sit on, in the sand, and then the <clears throat> ocean, and you could see the mountains in the distance, and the city off this way. And people would go, and they'd sit with their French fries, and it was almost every time I was there, there was somebody with their French fries, and they would see a seagull pass by, and for some unknown reason, they felt sorry for the rat-of-the-sky seagull, Right? And he took, they they would take their, their, their uh, French fry and they would throw it. Here you go, seagull. (laughs) And then the seagull would come. I don't know if you know this, but the seagulls have a hive mind. And when you give one to a one seagull, it communicates to all the seagulls around the world that there are french fries in this particular location. And so, I'm not kidding. It was like, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Hitchcock's The Birds, but there was, the, the, these seagulls come flocking and they land and run And the guy would say, oh, there's another one. And then he'd do this, but before it's over, his shirt's dotted with white and like, it's, because it's, listen, there's, there's never just one seagull. When there are french fries around, there's never just one seagull. When French fries increase, the seagulls increase those who eat them. Like I said before, you know, if you, if I promised you, if you came into money right now, like you, you went out and you somehow, you know, won the lottery and you came into money, I can guarantee you that cousin Jeb, who you do not know and have never met, will be immediately saying, so cousin, how, would you like to invest in my band that's the way it works. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So if you didn't have them, you wouldn't have this trouble is the point that he's making. And what advantage has their owner, that would be you, if you come into the money, what, what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Is it, you don't actually get to experience them. You just see them in the hands of, the, you know, you see, the, you see them in the hands of Cousin Jeb. You see the French fry in the mouth of the seagull and you think, I would have liked that French fry. That's why I got them, but now I can't have it because everybody else is around and they want eight television sets. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. A laborer is the person who shows up from eight to five or nine to five and then they go home after taking their 15-minute breaks and their 30-minute lunch. And when the laborer goes home, the laborer does not sit down and think, oh, how, well, how, how many ways can I improve the, the lot of the company? They don't do this. You know who thinks about that? The guy who runs the company. And you know when he thinks about it? Usually about 3 in the morning. Staring up the ceiling, trying to figure out how it is that he's going to protect the assets that the company has so that it can keep going. Now, he might have all sorts of good reasons for it. And he might be saying, you know what? I want to provide jobs. I want to do this. But the worry and the stress lays on him and not the laborer. And so, yeah, we want more money. I want more money. Right. If you get more money, then you're going to be in the situation of the ripped rich. And even though he's got a full stomach, you're not going to sleep well. Mo' money, mo' problems. Yes. Honestly, Kohelet, he he was the first guy. He probably just wrote that in this Mo' money, mo' problems. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, he says. Remember, this is, is, uh, he's talking about life on this side of eternity. It's life on this world, and it applies to everybody. I don't care what your religious background or spiritual flavors are. There's a grievous evil that I've seen in life on this earth, this side of eternity. uh, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. So he's going to say, let me me give you an example. Let me give you an an example of a guy. It's a case study, okay? So there's, there's this guy. He's the owner of the riches. And they were kept by him. That word is really a strong Hebrew word, that word kept. Um, It it basically means to guard something against theft. So since I'm picking on the animal kingdom, when I was in Zambia uh, with a friend who was a pastor and uh, training some some church uh, leaders there, I went to uh, an area a park and, and you know how like are seagulls that come at some of the ocean parks and sometimes they're, you know, around here, pigeons or things like that. Well, in this particular park in Zambia, the local pigeon was the baboons, which was weird, right? For a guy who's so used to seeing the, the ducks come by to see a baboon come up and sit right in front of you. <laughs> and there's like five of them. They're actually kind of big. And they would sit right in front of you and, and, and you know, you, you'd be eating something and the baboons would be, they'd all come and they'd sit there. And I, I just, I've seen the Planet of the Apes movies and it's kind of freaked me out, of course. So, so what, do you, what do you do? My friend told me, oh, you want to turn your back on them so they don't see it. So I'm like this, but you keep your eye on them, right? This is, this is the posture that he's talking about. Money that was kept, riches that were kept guarded from those who want to take him. So here's this guy. He wants to keep the money. He wants to guard the money. He likes the money. The problem is they, they were kept to his hurt. How? Well, they were lost in a bad venture. Yeah, he, he, he bet on the wrong horse. He bought the wrong land. He decided that he, that, whatever. He bought high and sold low. It's not the way it's supposed to work. And so he had all of this money, right? He's a rich guy. And maybe all of this property. And he was trying to keep it and guard it and make more of it. But in so doing, he, he lost it all, which happens. And he's a father of a son, The responsibility of a father in these days was to pass along to your progeny, to the people who come after you, your kids, what you received plus some. The culture at large would weigh your success as a father based upon that success or failure. If you as a father lost all your money so that your kids and grandkids didn't have anything else, the entire society would, would, would shame you publicly, right? Talk about cancel culture. They would cancel you and say, you are a wicked, awful dad for doing this. And so the story this guy brings up is, okay, so there's his rich father and he's got all his money and then he gets involved in this weird, you know, he gives cousin Jeb money for his band and then it all goes away and he's got a son. So the whole society thinks he's an idiot now rightfully so, and he has nothing in his hands. As he came from his mother's womb, he'll go again naked as he came and take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is a grievous, this is a grievous evil. If this guy hadn't worried about the money and hadn't chased it and hadn't loved it, he wouldn't be in this situation. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in, listen to the language, in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness and anger. So at the end of this guy's life, he's all alone in a room. Nobody wants to be around him because he's such a failure. And he's there mad at God because God let this happen to him. Or to put it another way, money's really, really dangerous. It's not something that you should take you should take lightly at all. Um, this is the consistent testimony in the Bible about money, just so you know. Uh, we might read Kohelet here and think, well, those are just kind of interesting reasons that maybe have more application to your particular day. But I'm, I'm telling you that if you take what Kohelet says about money and you place it within the theme of the entire Bible, it fits perfectly as a puzzle piece. Perfectly as a puzzle piece. And you say, okay, but what does the whole puzzle reveal then? Ready? It reveals a loaded gun in the hands of your kids. Here's what I mean by that. You would never give a loaded gun in the hand of your kid without training, without warning, without, okay, so you need to push safety, without all of that. You would never. Here's a gun. Johnny, it's time. Happy fourth birthday. It's a Glock. You you would never do this. And of course, the reason you'd never do this and the reason the whole society would say, don't do this, is because... It's very dangerous, right? Well, the whole Bible is basically saying, if, if you want to ruin the lives of those you love, wish for them all the money. You will be placing in their hands a loaded gun. Is it possible that the gun won't go off? Yes. Is it likely that they're going to shoot a foot, their foot? Yes. So be very careful with it. Handle handle with care. I'm always surprised at how much Christians are shocked when I say that. I'm not saying that you are necessarily, but when I've been involved in ministry for lots and lots of years and how shocked Christians are. Wait a minute, what? Money, money is, is dangerous? Yeah, it, it, the Bible's view on money runs dead against the grain of our culture at large. You're trying to chase it, I'm trying to chase it, and the Bible's like, you should probably run away from it, you know what I mean? Let me give you some examples about how this kind of warning shows up in the rest of Scripture. So if I'm going to put the other puzzle pieces, several of them next to it, just give you a picture that it actually ends up looking like a gun. So this is from Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Um, Someone in the crowd, so Jesus is there and he's speaking to a crowd of people and someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, this is an interesting <clears throat> situation. So the way it worked is, if uh, in those days, if you received the if you received the money from your 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 parents or your dad, uh, he had just passed away. The responsibility for the money was in the oldest boy. He could keep it all, but it was what that was looked down upon by the whole society. His responsibility was: I'm going to keep it. I'm going to take care of my siblings, though, right? By sharing the money with them, so that they can live. So legally, it was all his, but the expectation was that he would actually give it away. So what we're dealing with is a brother who got all the money, and everyone expects him to give it away, including his younger brother, but he's not doing it. So there's a cry of injustice here. And so this guy comes to Jesus, the rabbi, the holy one, and says, hey, man, I got a problem. It's going to be an easy fix. Just tell my brother to do the right thing. Just tell him to do the right thing. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? I always think that's funny. I always think the guy's like, you're God. Like, what, what do you mean who made you judge? Jesus is, is like, oh, I, why, why are you bringing this issue to me? And it's almost like he's saying there's something else going on behind here, okay? And I know that because of what he says next. He said to them, notice, he turns to the crowd. So he's dealing with this guy and he says, what, what's, this, what's the issue with me? And he looks at him in the eyes and then he turns to the crowd and he says this. Take care, everybody. Be on your guard against all covetousness. The wanting for more, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. So his approach to this guy is basically, look, I know that you've got this question about you and your brother and the injustice of it, but it's not really the injustice that's bugging you, is it? It's the money. Because if your brother only received a hundred bucks and he's not willing to share the hundred bucks, you wouldn't be here talking to me, would you? But because it's a substantial amount, you're here and going, tell him to share the money because it's it's about the money. So everybody, money's dangerous. (laughs) Want, Want to see how? Okay. He told them a parable. So the land of a rich man, so he's already a wealthy dude, he's got plenty to live on, he produced plentifully, right? He's got a chance of getting richer. And he thought to himself, uh, this is a very important phrase, he thought to himself, because the rest of what you're about to read involves two, two parties. The first party is he, and the other party in the dialogue is himself. So... He is going to speak to himself about himself because there's nobody else in the world that matters. It's just he and himself. What shall I do, he said to himself, for I have nowhere, notice it all, to store my crops. And he said, okay, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store my grain and my goods. Hey, dude, there's other people in the world. Nope, only me and this dude over here who I will call Soul. I will say to my soul, I named him Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Uh, can I just stop there for just one second and just tell you that that is the message of what you should do with extra wealth coming from our whole society? If you get a bumper crop, if you have a raise, if you get everything, build bigger barns. Store more because when you retire, you don't want to have to work at McDonald's. Have as much as you possibly can so you can buy a boat and go and collect seashells. That, that is the message. If you don't believe me, watch the Super Bowl commercials, okay? And everyone that's a financial advisor or an insurance company, that's the message. Make sure you have enough for who? Well, the only people that matter, you and your soul. And yet, Jesus is going to run straight against the grain. But God said to him, so people who think this, in our culture, they're like, if, you're, if you wanna be wise, you will save all the money and bigger barns and bank accounts. That's the wise thing to do. But God said to him, fool. The message of our culture widely about money is essentially foolishness to God. Why? This night, your soul, remember the guy you were talking about <laughs> in two? He's, it's required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The way you're rich toward God is that you share. That's what the guy should have done. He should have said, I have enough and I'm going to share it with these other people. But instead, he collected it all and it cost him his soul. I'm telling you, it's a gun money. A loaded gun. Uh, Jesus the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24, he says about as plain as I can, I can say, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted, that's what it means to love, to the one and despise what it means to hate the other. Either you'll be devoted to one or you're gonna despise the other, uh, you can't serve God and money. And everyone in our society is like, well, yeah, but we, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to serve God through having all the money. That way, when I have all the money, people, will, it's an, it's, it'll be an evangelistic technique. When I get all the money, people will look at me and say, how'd you get all the money? And you can say, Jesus. No, you, It's an either or. Because what money does is it lures your heart into believing that you can control your life. And the only one who can control your life is God. So either he's in control or you're in control through your money. Not both. The best passage in the Bible, in my opinion, about money The most summarizing passage that I know of is in 1 Timothy chapter six, verses six to 10. Here's what Paul writes. He said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You guys want something that's worth having, that's gain, that's not hevel? Godliness with contentment. Love Jesus and be content with what he's given you. Because we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. Remember, that's what Jesus promised us, isn't it? The sparrows and the lilies of the field, look how they're dressed and fed. So don't worry about what you should eat or what you should wear. Your Father in heaven knows you have need of these things. So he'll, he's promised to provide those things for you. So be content with the things that he's provided. But those, here's the problem. Those who desire to be rich, Not just the people who are rich, guys. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare. It is a trap. In the middle of the woods, Satan has put a big pile of money and there's a rope right around it and he's behind the tree saying, just a little closer, just a little closer, just a little closer, and then when you lunge for it, who! up you go. I got you, man. I got you. You can't serve two masters and now I got you serving the one that's not God. They fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And the worst part of it is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have, guys, they've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They've believed that money can actually provide for them only, what only God can, can provide, and they've sold their soul down that, down that river. <laughs> it's a gun. It's a loaded gun. Now, the response that lots and lots of Christians have at this point is like, well, geez, yeah, that's right. We shouldn't have anything. I mean, when I say lots and lots. Throughout the history of the church, there's been a real movement of people saying, right, because that's the case, we shouldn't have anything. What's crazy about this is, not, is where he goes next, where Kohala goes next at the end of this, in Ecclesiastes 5.18, because what you expect him to say is, see, money's massively dangerous. You should have none of it and none of the things it provides. That way you'll be safe. But then he turns and says, yeah, no, actually money can be delightful too. It's, it's dangerous, but it also can be, it can be delightful. And so here's the last part of it. Behold, look, like if you look around the society and your life and the world, here's what you're going to find. He says, what I've seen to be good and fitting is that eating's great, drinking's great and finding enjoyment and all the toy, all the stuff that you do under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is, this is his lot. You, you are in this world filled with heaven. Things don't work out like you planned. All of the things that you put your hope in, thinking they'll deliver you into a great you know, area of hope and joy and peace and prosperity, it will not turn out that way. So, what do you do? You have steak, right? Uh, Coke zero, I, okay. Coke, I don't, whatever. Not bourbon. We're Christians after all. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and he's given the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot, the one who has these things, accept his lot and rejoice in his toil and the things that he's doing. Guys, this is the gift. This is the gift of God. God the enjoyment of the things that, he, that he's given you. He won't remember. The good news is that you, the guy who the Lord has given this as a gift, who's not putting all of his hope in the stuff, but believes that there's another world beyond this one where my, my hopes are gonna be fulfilled in Jesus. So I just treat these things as what they are, just joyful little treasures along the journey to a world that my, 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 my greatest joys will be fulfilled. He will not much remember the days of this Hevel life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He likes riding his bike. And when you're riding your bike, you smile. You don't think about heaven. Isn't that cool? Look, let me summarize everything he's saying just uh, this way. Uh, There are probably four ways that I can think of that people this side of heaven treat money and wealth, okay? One of them is what I call uh, secular existentialism. (laughs) Are you happy you came to church today? Because you learned that word. Existentialism is the living in the moment, okay? That's what it means, that it's a belief of living in the moment at every point. Secular means godless. This is the viewpoint of our, our entire society. The Western world is basically secular existentialists. And the reason for that is because they say, look, there is no God and that means there's no afterlife. And because there's no afterlife, the moment that you, you know, you stop breathing, you rot in the ground and you're in, you're, not even, you're nowhere, you're just not. So between now and that moment... Carpe diem, right, seize the day. Do you know what helps you seize the day? Money, bourbon, all this stuff that helps you. you. And so we call these whooshes, right? The the stuff money can buy. The guy at the end of his yacht waving at the end, you know, the yacht, there's a whoosh. Going to the, the, the game where your team's gonna win the World Series, that's a whoosh. So the whole society's saying, listen, the best hope that you have is these whooshes and you should just absolutely in, invest everything into them because that's all that you've got. But go hell, it's like, what a horrible life that is because of heaven. Because this world, it, yeah, it's filled with dancing. It's also filled with mourning. And if the best that you've got is the letdown that you get when you've invested everything into these things to provide for you, and they don't, man, I feel bad for you. What a horrible way to live. Constantly let down. So Christians come along and they're like, no, uh, that's not right. Uh, I'm gonna hold a view that's what I'd call Christian prosperity. Yes, look, there is a heaven. You guys get it wrong, there is a heaven. But here's the cool news, ready? Ready? The cool news is that you can bring heaven into the now by declaring it. Did you know this? You could say, I decree and declare that I have all the money, and then you will have all the joys that are for this heavenly realm in the here and now. You can be free of sickness, you can be free of pain, you can be free of sorrow, of course the, the problem is Kohel it's like yeah but you won't be because you know life under the sun is hell. I mean you can pretend which is what those folks end up doing and they end up saying no I'm not sick because saying it gives somehow gives it power and they end up dying pretending that they're not sick what a horrible way to live Having Christian pastors tell you, no, no, heaven's not a thing. It's not a thing. It won't be a thing. Get the money, enjoy all the money and live like heaven is now. It's not now. It's not now. All right, so this is why historically there's a whole bunch of Christian people who've been like, well, uh, that's why we should get rid of all this stuff. If you want to be serious about your, your faith, uh, this is called Christian asceticism. This word means monkish. It means having nothing. <laughs> if you want to be serious about your faith, guys, what you should be doing is you should, uh, you know, be radical. Have, push, push all the stuff to the side. Remember the rich ruler? He was asked to give everything he had. You should give everything that you have to the Lord and not have anything except the shirt on your back. That, that's what we should be doing is living in communes and sharing lawnmowers. The problem, of course, is Kohela comes along and he's like, yeah, but all the stuff that God gave is a gift, right? Can you imagine giving a gift to your kid on a Christmas morning and saying, here, I bought this for you special and I want you to enjoy it. And he opens it, it's a baseball bat. And he's like, well, I I could die with this, so no. This is dangerous, I'm throwing it away. And you're like, yeah, you could probably bash your head in with it, but if used rightly... You could hit home runs. Don't you enjoy the gift? And this is what Kohal is saying. Don't you see that God's given you so many gifts to enjoy? That's why he gave them to you. Not so that you could build all your hope in them and think they're going to answer all the questions. Jesus will answer all the questions. But all the other stuff Jesus gives you and say, I want you to enjoy this. Look, your team is winning. It doesn't happen very often. Rejoice. There's a last way. By the way, if anybody ever says, there's four choices or three choices, it's always number th- four or three. I'm just calling it Kohelet's way. And Kohelet's way is what I just described. Look, life is filled with heaven. All the things that you place, and I place my hope and dream upon, if they're things of this earth, are not going to fulfill like we think. But that doesn't mean those things are worthless. It means that between now and the time of the great fulfillment in Jesus and his kingdom, we should enjoy the journey and eat steak. Maybe I'll just give you an image that hopefully will help as I finish here, right? (laughs) Uh, I don't like hiking very much. Um, I think hikers are liars, and the reason I think they're liars is because they always say the same thing to me. It's, Jeff, I know it's hard to climb the mountain, but when we get there, it'll be worth it. And it's never worth it. And the reason it's never worth it is because I could see the same thing by driving up the mountain. And I could see the same thing on Instagram. <laughs> or I could get on an airplane and have even a better view than all, than all of those things. But I still hike. Not much, Right. But I still hike. Why? Well, look. I'm not placing all my hope in the destination. I'm not placing all my hope in the idea that we're going to get to some location and the massive whoosh is going to make me feel some transcendental, you know, oneness with the universe. No. Nope. I hike because I get to talk to my kids. I get to throw pine cones at my kids. I get to hide behind trees and pretend to be Sasquatch and scare them out of their minds. I get to tease my wife and hang out with her and complain about my legs and whatever. Because of the journey, because sometimes you get these wonderful vistas and these great moments along the journey. Is it always fun, the journey? No, but there's a lot of fun in it. You do know that if, if you go talk to a professional athlete, especially like a baseball player, if you ask them like 10 years after their career's over, hey, what was the best part of your career? They rarely say winning the World Series or that game that we won. You know what they almost always say? It was the hanging out with the guys. It was the life of spending it with these guys and be able to show up in the sunshine every day and throw baseballs. That's my That was my job, and they paid me millions of dollars to do this job. Can you imagine how great that is? Don't you see? Don't you see? Heaven is heaven. This is not heaven. So in the meantime, there are these little gifts that the Lord gives us. After church today, you're going to go out the doors, and you're going to drive in a really cool car, in many cases, that works. It goes forward. You're going to ride a bike. You're going to enjoy the sunshine. You'll probably have lunch. The quesadilla is lovely. Enjoy all of those things, not because they're gods, but because they're gifts from God. The Lord is a good father, loves to give good gifts to his children. Beware of money. Be wise with money. But also be delighted with money. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for my friends and for uh, this cool passage of scripture and I just love the way that Kohelet looks at the world. It has such a healthy approach to things, focused on the right things in the right amount. So Father, would you find us uh, faithful in response? Uh, In this case, Lord, it's not not so much a repentance as an opening our hearts to the great joys that is that you've given in the place where they belong. Not as kings and gods of our lives, but as tools to enjoy and use So I pray, Father, that you'd help us have a great, great, great day basking in the glory that is ours as Christians, headed to an eternal goodness, and in the meantime, eating steak. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel Podcast.